Hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to Out the Gate Sailing, the podcast, as you probably know by now, about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. I'm your host, Ben Shaw. Sponsorship for the podcast comes from Shearwater Sailing, a charter business run by Kevin Wasbauer out of Monterey Bay. Kevin offers offshore excursions aboard a fully equipped FAR 53 named Atalanta. And if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to episode 85 of the show. Get a sense of Kevin and Shearwater Sailing. And when I interviewed Kevin, not only did I have the opportunity to sit down and chat with him aboard this gorgeous boat, but I got to spend the day sailing aboard Atalanta. Newly refit, she's a beautiful, comfortable, and safe vessel. Kevin has really done an amazing job refining her with two private cabins and ensuite heads, hot water showers, all the amenities you could want. And she is a speed demon. She's a fast, fun boat to sail. I was really impressed with the expertise shown by the captain and crew and can safely say that anyone, novice to expert sailor, will learn when they're out on the water with Kevin. Shearwater Sailing is flexible. They can provide custom itineraries, anything from a two-hour cruise to uh, overnight trips or longer. You can reach out directly by visiting shearwatersailing.net or find them on Instagram and Facebook at Shearwater Sailing. Or give them a call, 650-743-1389. Or shoot them an email at info at shearwatersailing.net. You won't regret it. This week's guest is Cree Partridge, a boat builder and self-described supporter of dreams. Cree owns the Berkeley Marine Center and has helped all kinds of boating projects get started and come to fruition. I had Dovka actually delivered to the Berkeley Marine Center when she was trucked over here from the East Coast, and I really loved going to the Berkeley Marine Center when she was there because there were all kinds of really cool projects going on, chatting with the people who came in and out of that yard. It was just fascinating. Cree had a long career in racing before getting into boat building. So we talk about the origins of his love for being on the water, his time racing in the Pacific, and some of the more memorable projects he's worked on. Here we go. Cree Partridge, born in California, sailed all over the world, built boats, repair boats, now, where are we sitting right now? We're sitting in my office at the Berkeley Marine Center, looking out on the bay. Gorgeous Right view. now, we've got only a two-bridge view here, so it's kind of bottom end of the, of the uh, views from the bay. <laughs> but we could go out on the point and catch Richmond, San Rafael, the Golden Gate, and Bay Bridge. And on a clear day, you can even see further than that from the roof of the building. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's not a bad location. No, it's the only boatyard in the middle of a park that I know of. Tell me about when you first came here. Oh, boy. <laughs> that was interesting. What year are we talking? 
probably the early 90s, we um, sold the condominium up in at Friday Harbor in Washington. And so we brought our power boat down here, looking around for a place to haul the boat. I knew the Berkeley Marina and just happened to pick the Berkeley Marine Center to haul the boat. And at the time, the nicest lady owned this. Her husband died of cancer, and so she was managing it, doing the best she could to try and keep it open and try and sell it, which is another story. But we would haul the boat out on a Friday and do all the work on the boat and put it back in on Monday, and you didn't get charged for lay days the day of hauling or the day of launching. Wow. And over the weekend, they didn't staff the place, so there was no no lay days. (laughs) And so we just took advantage of the situation, and we could do a bottom job for the cost of the paint. Wow. Yeah. So we did that for a few years, and then a friend of mine came to me. He knew that I was closing up another project and looking for something else to do and said, why don't you buy the Berkeley Marine Center? I said, I know that place. I mean, I didn't need an introduction to the place. I knew that that there was upside in it, definitely, just staffing it. I mean, they had the fuel dock closed on the weekends. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Then the pleasure boat industry, you don't sell any fuel during the week. You sell it all on the weekends. Sure. So she really was just trying to mark time to yeah. to get rid of the business and get on with her life. Yeah. So anyway, we long story short, we, we ended up making an offer on the place, which was her price, our terms. And in any event, we arrived at a conclusion and bought the place in 2000. And that's kind of the beginning of the story. So you've been here over 20 years now. I mean, you have so many interesting projects going on here, beautiful boats, and I want to jump into that. But first, I want to go back and ask about how you first got introduced to boats, to sailing, because you obviously have a deep passion for Oh yeah, boats. We, the Perfect. the first boat that I built was on on the front lawn of our family home uh, when I was a kid. Was that up in Washington? No, in was Southern it, California. Oh, Southern California. Okay. Yeah, it, it was built out of uh, leftover parts from houses that were being built around us, um, <laughs> and never made it to the water, luckily. <laughs> but it was a a lot of fun to do. What age were you? Oh, I, was, I mean, I was big enough to carry lumber from from the trash heap at a construction site to the house, so I had to be four or five years old yeah. or something like that. Now, had you been on boats? Where did this desire to build a boat in your front yard come from? My dad and my godfather used to go fishing every Saturday mm. in a rowboat out of uh, Portuguese Bend and come back with just gobs and gobs of fish. I was told that as soon as I could swim, I could go with them. That was something that was generally told to both my brothers and myself. We went through an inflatable boat that I recall that Dad got from War Surplus. 
and I don't recall if that ever floated, but we worked on it like dogs. Eventually, uh, we got Dad to the point where, okay, we're going to go buy a fishing boat. We did that, and that was when I was in maybe fifth grade. Mm. The deal was that we had to maintain the boat if if we were going to get it, and we all agreed that was a great, great trade. My brothers and I started maintaining the boat, and we all did what we were interested in. My little brother was probably more interested in engines, older brother more interested in making the boat watertight so that he could go fishing. He was passionate about fishing Mm. when we we were kids. My dad would take him down to San Pedro and put him on the cattle boats by himself probably when he was in second or third grade and he'd go out fishing and come back and dad would pick him up with his sack of fish. That's great. So he was really, really passionate about fishing. I was less so, but just wanted to get out on the water. What would you say your passion about the boat was? Just being on it. Being on it. Yeah. I just, I, I, today, if you, if I go out and you leave me alone, I'll, I'll sit with my legs over the side just watching the water go by. And I can do that for hours or days or weeks. I just thoroughly enjoy it. What is it about being on the water for you? It's always challenging. It's challenging when it's flat calm, challenging when it's ridiculously rough. It's the only place that I know where a person can match his skills and intelligence with nature and win or lose. Yeah. I can't explain it any further than that. I mean, I've been rolled over, lost boats from under me, been rescued. Any nature of thing has happened. And people people look at those things and say, well, don't, doesn't it scare you? Doesn't it make you not want to go? And I said, it really doesn't. It makes me want to do more. None of the episodes, the bad episodes, or so-called bad ap- episodes that I've been through, tarnishes my interest at all. In, in being on the water. And it doesn't matter. It, it can be on a little tiny dinghy here in the marina just paddling around or on some monster boat doing ridiculous speed or just out fishing for salmon. It's just fun. I'm smiling because I have the same feeling. It's just, just being out there. Yeah. Yeah. So let's jump forward. And it's something that you can't teach people. Either they like it or don't like it, appreciate it or don't appreciate it, or think that they can win. You don't win in the ocean. You survive. Yeah. You don't win in the ocean. You survive. Yeah. So when did you first start surviving in the ocean? Let's jump <laughs> forward a little bit. Sounds like we've got to get to some of these good stories. Well, when when we were kids... My two brothers and I bought a Sabbath. Okay. A little eight-foot boat. Plywood? No, no. Oh. First, One of the first fiberglass ah, ones. Ah, okay. Um, we sailed that back and forth, sailed it over at Catalina. We had a friend that had a, a Sabbath, and his dad would take me and, and Pete, my school chum, down to an inland patch of water 
uh, near the Union Oil Terminal, and it was reeds and a little open space, and he'd tell us how to go back and forth. Uh-huh. And so that was the beginning of the education about sailing, and we just we we explored that slough up one side, down the other, and 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 then we would go from again back to Portuguese Bend, and we'd take a, a can of beanie weenies and go around to Pirate's Cove <gasps> by ourselves, uh-huh. you know, which was out of sight of yeah. the parents, yeah. uh, which was a huge thing, uh, and then and then row back, just pushing the sabot as far as we could go. We w- we at the time would take it out into what was called Hurricane Gulch, which is now a, ter- a terminal in San Pedro. Sail it and try and break it and do everything we could and, and survived all that. Built spinnakers for it out of old parachutes and just pushed it to the limit. The three of us were working on the boat all the time and on either side of us were sailboats. One of them raced all the time. Here were three meatheads next door on a Saturday morning sanding the boat and obviously looking for anything else to do but sand. They started asking all my brothers and I to go and usually we could spare one person. So one person would go go out sailing and and so that started the racing, started the sail real sailing. Yeah. And started the racing part and I just took off on that. Like mm gangbusters. I mean, every time I could go racing, my dad used to call me Mr. Vacation (laughs) because I was always racing somewhere or doing something. And we raced the old Cal 24s and Cal 20s, any number of small boats that we used to race and then started getting on to bigger and bigger boats. It really took off when I was in college up here in Berkeley, as a matter of fact. Ah. And there was a boat called Baruna, 72-foot Sparkman and Stevens boat that I desperately wanted to get aboard. And I lobbied around the St. Francis Yacht Club and tried to get on and never could get into the inner circle of the groupies that were sailing it. I was probably shy about it Mm -hmm. and not as outspoken as I would be today. So ultimately, the boat sold to a Southern California guy, I decided I'm going to get aboard that boat by hook or crook. So I applied for a transfer to UCLA, went down and found the boat, went right up to the skipper and said, I want to race on this boat. And they were putting together a crew at the time because it had just relocated to Southern California. So my timing was absolutely perfect. They said, well, come on down next Saturday. And so I figured, oh, okay, well, this is great. We'll just go out in the in the ocean and have a little test. Well, that little test ended up being around Catalina, <laughs> and I didn't know I was I was getting on board for around the Catalina race. Everybody said, well, don't didn't you bring your sleeping bag? And and I thought, oh, geez. no, I didn't bring my sleeping bag. I'm not going to need my sleeping bag. We're going to be back before before you need to go to bed or you, before you need to get off watch. It was just kind of a premonition because we ended up setting a record. It was un- unbelievable. And we were, we were back at the finish, 
probably by 10 or 10.30 at night, which is unheard of for the race. And you won the race, I assume. And we won the race, set a record. And you were welcome to the crew? And I was part of the crew. <laughs> that is great. What I is had, the name I of that book? I had a little a, a notebook and a pencil, and I was so intent on making sure that I knew who was there, and I was writing writing people's names down. I mean, there were 16 people aboard the boat. I didn't want to make a mistake at all. I was just absolutely on pins and needles yeah. the whole time. What was the name of this boat again? Baruna. Baruna, okay. It's being restored right now in Great Britain, and they're doing a big, big story about it, a publication. So the person that's been doing the publication has back been back in touch with me trying to hear hear about the races that we did because we did all the Mexican races and Transpac twice in that boat. That's one of the boats that I got rolled over in. Then we sailed it down to Fiji where the owner went and bought an island and wanted his boat down there. So that was another great trip. So how long were you aboard? Close to six years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I need to hear the story of rolling Baruna in the pack cup. No, we rolled it on the way home. Okay. The first Hawaii race that we took it in was in 69. On the way home from that race, there were six of us aboard the boat. It was just a spectacular trip. We went north from Hawaii, pounding into a pretty steep head sea. I was the one that would usually go up the mast to inspect things, would do that every other day or so. Mm-hmm. And on one of my trips, I discovered that the headstay was ripping the tang out of the top of the mast. Wooden mast? Wooden mast, mm-hmm. yeah. And it was rip, ripping the, the metal because we were pulling it to the side so, so heavily. Mm. Over the next day and a half or two, we had plenty of diesel aboard, so we made a right-hand turn and headed for the middle of the Pacific High so that it would be calm. While we were in that high, just flat calm, just unbelievably flat calm, powering along. We put a chunk of chain in from the mast to the headstay so that we could repair it. Mm -hmm. And then as we're coming out of the high on the eastern side, sailing along and in increasing winds I think we were about five or six hundred miles from the coast we were under a reduced sail with a mizzen sail up and a staysail bombing along at nine or ten knots it's the middle of the night we just came on watch at at midnight buddy of mine and I were under a little or he was under the dodger that we put over the the, the wheel area so that off-watch guy, there were two of us on deck at all uh-huh. times, could get out of the spray and weather. I watched him double his tether, okay. which meant that if something happened, he wouldn't go overboard. It would keep him right there. Kept it short. Short, yeah. So half as long as it normally would be. And I tell you that because the next part of the story is really interesting we're in just ridiculous weather, waves breaking over all the time and spray and and a lot of commotion. And the other watch, or the other two watches are off. The boat is closed up 
with the exception of a little tiny hatch that ventilates the aft stateroom. That's up just an inch or two to let some air down, down into there. We hear a shushing sound from quite a ways, um, like a bow wave for a big ship mm. or something like that. Uh-huh. I yell at my watchmate, hey, there's something going on. So I start turning the spreader lights on and off and looking around to see if there's any, th- any lights that I see anywhere on the horizon. There are none. And I, I keep the spreader lights on at that point because I don't see anything, but I want to make everybody understand that there's a boat here. Yeah. Long story short, the shushing turned out to be a breaking sea that was coming at us. And it rolled the boat down in the water and rolled over the top of the sail. We're underwater, and I'm still at the wheel. And when it turns back vertical, I'm up to my neck in water, looking out at the mast sticking up and the boat is shuddering like you can't believe as it rises. As I look down, because the lights are still on, my buddy is down there clawing at the water to try and get to the air. <laughs> can't can't do it because he's tethered down. Um, I mean, this is happening fast. Yeah. So he couldn't get air for just it's like going through a, through a wave surfing, you know, okay. eventually you get there. Right. And so the boat came up and started sailing along on its own, albeit now very clean and no more water <laughs> on deck other than the normal spray. And we gather ourselves together and figure out what had happened. And, and we hear this blue streak of expletives coming from down below because we had been getting flying fish aboard during the night and taking them down and putting them in the guys' bunks. And, you know, <laughs> all, all of us were, were playing games on each other. Right. And Harold, the skipper, had just put his last pair of, of dry socks on and went, went into the berth, which was on the lower side, which is right at the tra- trajectory where the water was just fire hosing in and he thought that we had turned a a deck hose on him and were squirting him (laughs) and he came up and threw the hatchback and there's still still water enough water on deck that that he left a ton of water in the boat Uh, and it's enough to fill fill the bilge into the lower sections of the boat so that they're they're full of water and starts screaming at us for whatever we did and going to get us. <laughs> so we all settled out and figured out what had happened, and he went and took his last pair of socks off. and Dry no more. Yeah. yeah. So, But the boat was sound, a little bit oh, of yeah. pumping, and you guys were on your way. It, we never stopped. Yeah. 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 You obviously continued sailing. Yeah. Did a lot of multi-hull racing. Mm-hmm. Set a record to Puerto Vallarta in a 44-foot catamaran. Hmm. Uh, Puerto from, Vallarta to, from here? From where? From L.A. From L.A., okay. We were, we were so early in that race, and we finished in the middle of the morning. We had, again, had the spreader lights on, and we're charging back and forth along the beach in Puerto Vallarta. 
sounding a horn, and we just decided, well, the heck with this. We're, we took our own time and went into the marina, and the next morning went to the race committee and told them that we had finished, and there was <laughs> they, our they time. They weren't even up. <laughs> you were <Yeah>. too early. <laughs> no, they did, just didn't believe that we could have made it. And we had checked in by radio and told them that we were moving fast. <laughs> Be um, ready for us, but they yeah. weren't. So did you have a particular role, or did you move around? No, I moved around a lot. Um, I was aloft a lot, involved in a, in a lot of most of the sail changes, not so much tactics or any of that kind of stuff. But I was young and strong and ready to go, so you did just about anything you could. Did a lot of, a lot of steering and a lot of sail changes. Yeah. So I was at both ends of the boat most of the time. Great experience. And, you, and still working to fix boats and work on the boats, I assume, between races. Is that how you um, gain most of your knowledge in terms of boat building? Boat through, building uh, started in the early 70s. And I was sitting on the rail of something like a CNC 41 or something like that with my 2B partner and a sailmaker friend of mine. And we started talking about building boats. Uh-huh. And I said, I re- really want to get started doing that. And uh, my partner, John Palmer, was a naval architect, uh, marine engineer, had been working for the Navy and high-speed boats down in San Diego, said that he'd, he'd like to do that too, and had previously had set up his own shop and was working out of his house at the time doing individual designs for small boats. We were with a good friend of ours, um, John Conser, who owned a company called Windward Custom Sales. John was a multi-hull sailor, always looking for crew, so he was somebody that I stayed very close to because he had great access to, as a sailmaker to a lot of really interesting boats. So then Intrepid was racing in the, in the America's Cup, and I wanted desperately to get aboard that boat because uh-huh. it was the last wood boat. Last wood 12 uh, was a West Coast group that was putting the thing together. I uh, quit what I was doing and put together a, a van, a Dodge van, and went east. This was my great, great plan is to stand on the dock and say, hey, I want to go sailing just like I did. On, <laughs> it had worked before. Yeah, it did, did great before. So, of course, I got to watch the America's Cup races from the shore and then went up exploring Maine and Newfoundland and all sorts of things in, in my van. And on the way back, called John and said, hey, let's get this boat building thing going. And so he met me in, in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota. He flew, flew there and... Uh, with a package of Oreos and two or three gallons of, of milk, we <laughs> planned our boat building business. I love the, it. All the way back to Southern California. Milking cookies and a plan for a business. Absolutely. And it was done after that. We started building a catamaran for Soulcat on contract. Uh-huh. It was a developmental class, uh, ACAT, which used. Uh, tornado rig on it uh-huh. and what's a tornado rig? tornado catamaran rig okay so it's a big big sail area 
Got it. With a cat rig, no jib, just this monster main on an on a 18 foot boat that's 14 feet wide and wow, uh, just a machine. And um, we were gonna displace Hobie as the premier catamaran builder. You gotta have ambition. Absolutely, unstoppable. What was the name of that business? P squared boats. Palmer and Partridge. We built that boat on a plaster mold in his garage, took a mold off of it and decided, okay, now we're going to start producing these things. So we went and got an industrial, small incubator industrial building in Santa Ana Uh and started constructing that boat. And the guy at Soulcat that we were building it for started sailing it and saying how great it was and it was winning races and so forth and so on. But then Soulcat went out of business, so mm. that was the end of him. Mm. Right on the heels of that, there was a guy, Don Ayers, in Newport Beach that heard about us. I don't know how, but heard about these young guys that are doing fiberglass construction uh, and boat building. And... Um, he came up and said, can you guys build a 40-foot boat? Of course. Sure we can. Yeah. <laughs> 18-foot catamaran, 40-foot displacement sailboat? Sure. No problem. I love the chutzpah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Which led to the next boat. So we built that Peterson design boat for him called Drumbeat. And... Right on the heels of that, ran across a guy that had the the mold for Hutzpah, the Billy boat that had won the Transpac race in 70 or 72. And uh, so we got a hold of that mold and built a boat for him. <laughs> and, and it just started. And you were off and running. We were off and running. So that brings us back to this yard, which is great because... I have heard so many people say to me, Cree has helped make my dream come true, or Cree has helped with this project in, in so many ways. And it's not just a boatyard here. You really are helping people with the, these projects, unusual projects, interesting projects, get their, their dreams and their boats in the water and out to sea. So how, how do you think about that? Just like you said, Helping with dreams. The dream part is everybody has them. Whether it's a powerboat or a sailboat really doesn't make a lot of difference. If you have a dream and you want to succeed with that dream and you're willing to put in the time and effort to do it, I'm willing to help. And there's people that have dreams that have money to be able to satisfy those dreams and that's it's a different person than the person than most of the people that we deal with you know a person can go out just like me with with a dollar or a million dollars in their pocket and enjoy the ocean just as much yeah you know it has nothing to do with that the ocean doesn't care no it doesn't care and it's just as exciting to to deal with with both groups of people it's a a little more gratifying i think 
to see somebody that, that doesn't know that they can do it and doesn't know that they, they can accomplish something and you prod them a little bit uh-huh. and they do it yeah. and they're so satisfied in meeting that accomplishment, that to me is, is exciting. And, yeah. and there's no amount of, I mean, our yard bills are ridiculous and it doesn't matter that they, they pay a huge bill. What's important is the satisfaction that you see on their face when they understand that, that they changed their engine or they changed their mast or they, they did fiberglassing that they didn't do before and didn't know they could do it. Yeah. Or re-rigged something, you know, a different way. Or a fisherman goes out with a, with a, a, a new piece of equipment that he didn't know we could build. Yeah. Yeah. And it accomplishes what he wants. So, <clears throat> well, one of the projects that you're helping bring to life is Barry and Samantha, uh, Spinier's uh, Rosie G, which is sitting right outside the door here. I, I spoke to Barry on this program a while back. I think Rosie G was barely even a hull. Right. Tell me a little bit about that project and, and your, your role there and what you saw to help prod that along. Well, what was interesting about that is um, it's the first cruising boat that I've built mm-hmm. in a lot of, a lot of years. And it's the first real cruising boat. This one is one that was designed over a lot of years. By with, Jim Antrim, is that right? Well, first by Barry. Okay, that's uh, right. First by Barry. You know, he had a concept of, of what it was. And Jim Antrim was able to put his thoughts into something cohesive yeah. that works. Yeah. And I think that people are going to be standing back saying oh my gosh look at the performance look at the accommodations look at the at the package and i don't think that you can find a more interesting package in a 42 foot boat than what what they have accomplished i'm really excited to go, to go take a look at it cuz from what i've heard Barry talk about it. It's a very unique boat. It's going to have a unique rig. And I think you're right. I think people will step back and say, whoa, this is a new way yeah. of looking at cruising boat. Yeah. And I, I joke about the autopilot on the boat. And I don't think that it's contrary to what Barry and Samantha are thinking. I tell people that we are putting a, an autopilot aboard the boat that is connected with the sea temp so that when the sea temperature goes below 70 degrees, it'll stop the boat and turn it around and go back the other way. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Everybody's going to be asking for that. No, That's right. there are a lot of high-latitude sailors who aren't going to be asking for that. But uh, <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. What are some of the other projects that either stand out in your mind or are very close to your heart through the years? Years ago, we built a boat for for a guy in Southern California that was very much um, a knockoff of one of the Santa Cruz 70s, so much so that when we built it and found out how close and how much had been copied, 
that both my partner and I felt horrible about what we had done. And the boat boat went on to winning the Transpac and, and was really a spectacular boat, but not something to be proud of. And it ended up burning up in Mexico on one of the trips home. I have my own ideas about why it burnt, but that was a big boat that was interesting. We built a boat for a guy that, I mean, it's an example of a guy that had enough money to meet his dreams, Mm -hmm. but he was a guy that did it on his own. He made the money on his own, and it was a fellow that, that invented use of the pig's heart valve in, oh, in open heart surgery. Yes. I have an uncle who uh, benefited from that. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's so many people that benefited from what he did. Yeah. And he was such an interesting guy to work with. My wife is a biomedical illustrator. Okay. He found found that out and was in the process of developing this p- pig's heart valve and the transplant of it and got Julie into the operating room while he was installing one, and Julie actually had to hold the lungs back on the specimen. I won't tell you what the specimen is right away, but on the specimen while they installed the heart. So she came home just in seventh heaven, and I was told how much she had helped, and then she went on to illustrate his how-to book for the installation. And it was just really, really a, a, a great, great experience, the whole that, thing. And that's one of the things you were saying before we even started recording is how much just meeting different people. Oh, my gosh. The, the, people, that, the people that we have met through the years, the guy that we built the sister ship to Hutzpah turned out to be an attorney who ended up being our attorney for the business. And I just got a call from him last week. He's up in the San Juan Islands enjoying himself and just kind of touching base, you know, so you you never lose track of some of these people. The one thing that doing this podcast has shown me again and again is how wonderful connected and in the end small this whole sailing community is and it's really a a wonderful a wonderful group of people and i just want to thank you for talking to us about some of your experiences because i really really enjoyed talking to you and well there's another guy that you should talk to yeah who is that please i was going to ask you fred cook okay and fred cook um owns Sequoia, which is the Cal 40 that we restored. Oh, yes. And uh, and um, he really, really uh, has, he and, he and I have been down parallel paths, uh-huh. not knowing that, that he was rock throwing distance from me. I mean, there was one, one race around Catalina and and he was on a boat that I desperately wanted to get on, and 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 uh, and he, I remember him going down the backside of the island, and we're pushing this little boat that we're on as 
fast as it could go, and he's just <laughs> just smoking us. But um, he owns Schaefer Marine, um, and but his boat is here, so he's out here quite often. Okay, um, and he is somebody that you should talk to. Well, I will uh, reach and, out to you after this and get get his contact info. Yeah, and we we did a video of that restoration. I, that's why I was saying I, I saw some of those videos. I was saying oh, because yes, it rang a bell, and I remember seeing some of yeah. those. Um, yeah, beautiful, beautiful restoration. Yeah, but it's all he did. He did it. Yeah. Well, Cree, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed the interview. As always, you can leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and you can reach out to me directly on Instagram at OutTheGateSailing or via email at OutTheGateSailing at gmail.com. Again, I'm Ben Shaw, and until next time, smooth sailing. <laughs>